0: Chapter six. Death of Shelley's grandfather and birth of a child. Part two. Poetry was theirs. Nature their mutual love. Nature and two or three friends. If we may include the Quaker, Dr Pope, who called on Shelley and wished to discuss theology with him, and when Shelley said he feared his views would not be to the doctor's taste, replied, I like to hear thee talk, friend Shelley. I see thou art very deep. But beyond these, all friends had fallen off and certainly Godwin's conduct, seems to have been most extraordinary. He did not hesitate to put Shelley to considerable inconvenience for money. For not long after the one thousand pounds had been given, we find Shelley having to sell an annuity to help him with more money. Yet Godwin, all this time, treated Shelley and Mary with great haughtiness, much to their annoyance, though neither let it interfere with the duty they owed Godwin as father and philosopher." These perpetual worries help to keep them in an unsettled state in their home. Owing, perhaps, to the loss of the diary at this period, we have no information about Harriet. Already in January, we find there is an idea of residing in Italy, both for the sake of health and on account of the annoyance they experienced from their general treatment. Shelley had the poet's yearning for sympathy, and Mary must have suffered with and for him especially when her father, for whom he did so much, treated him with haughty severity by way of thanks. Mary attributed Godwin's conduct to the influence of his wife, whom she cordially disliked at this time. She was loath to recognize inconsistency in her father, whom she always revered. Godwin, on his side, was by no means anxious for his daughter and Shelley to leave for Italy in a few weeks' time, as intimated to him by Shelley as possible on the 16th of February. We thus see that a trip to the continent was contemplated some months prior to the journey to Geneva. This idea arose after the birth of Mary's first son, William, born January twenty-first, 1816, who was destined to be only for a few short years the joy of his parents, and then to rest in Rome, where Shelley was not long in following him. It is evident from Godwin's diary that Clare must have been, on a visit or in direct communication with Mary at the beginning of January. As Godwin notes, write to PBS inviting Jane, and it does not seem to have been possible for Shelley and Mary to have born resentment. The facts of this meeting early in the year, and that Mary and Shelley contemplated another of their restless journeys abroad, certainly take off from the abruptness of their departure for Geneva in May with Claire Claremont. Undoubtedly, Shelley was in a worried and excited state at this period, and he acted so as to rouse the doubts of Peacock, as to the reason of the hurried journey. The story of Williams of Tremadoc suddenly appearing at Bishop's Gate to warn Shelley that his father and uncle were engaged in a plot to lock him up seems without foundation. But when, in addition to this story, we consider Clare's history, we can well understand that, in spite of Shelley's love of sincerity and truth, circumstances were too strong for him, at a time when he and Mary were being avoided by society for openly defying its laws they might well reflect whether they could afford to avow the new complication which had sprung up in their small circle. Clare, in hopes of finding some theatrical engagement, had called upon Lord Byron at Drury Lane Theatre, apparently about March 1816, during the distressing period of his rupture with his wife. The result of this acquaintance is too well known, and has been too much a source of obloquy to all concerned in it to need much comment here, and it is only as the facts affect mary that we need refer to them at all at this time byron was about to leave england pursued justly or unjustly by the hatred of the british mob for a poet who dared to quarrel with his wife and follow the low manners of some of the leaders of fashion whom he had been intimate with their obscurity has sheltered them from opprobrium he was accompanied by the young physician dr john polidori who has somehow passed with byron's readers as a fool Yet he certainly could have been no fool in the ordinary sense of the word, as he had taken full degrees as a doctor at an earlier age, perhaps, than had ever been known before. His family, a simple and highly educated family, his father was Italian and had been secretary to Alfieri, caring very much for poetry and intellectual intercourse, were delighted at the prospect of the young physician having such an opening to his career, as his sister, the mother of poets, has told the writer. It is true that this exciting short period with Byron must have had an injurious effect on the young physician's after career, though he was still able to obtain the deep interest of Harriet Martineau at Norwich. It might be added that his nephew, not only a poet but a leader in poetic thought, deeply resented the insulting terms in which Byron wrote of Polidori, and although deeply admired the genius of Byron, did not fail to note where any weakness of form could be found in his work, such as human nature and so is poetic justice meted out. This might appear to be a slight digression from our subject, if it were not for the fact that when Mary wrote Frankenstein, et cetera on, as one of the tales of horror that were projected by the assembled party, it was only John Polidori's story of the vampire which was completed along with Mary's Frankenstein. The vampire, published anonymously, was at first extolled everywhere under the idea that it was Byron's. And when this idea was found to be a mistake, the tale was slighted in proportion, and its author with it. The fact is that as an imaginative tale of horror, the vampire holds its place beside Mary's Frankenstein, though not so fully developed, as a literary performance, or as an invention. So on the eve of Byron's starting for Switzerland, we find Shelley and Mary contemplating a journey with Claire in the same direction, by another route, into the same place and hotel, previously settled on and engaged by Byron. It certainly might appear that Shelley and Mary, in this dilemma, did not feel justified in acting towards another in a way contrary to their own conduct in life. In all probability, Clare confided her belief in Byron's attachment to herself after his wife had discarded him, to Mary or even to Shelley. Mary, however distasteful the subject must have been to her, would not perhaps allow herself to stand in the way of what, from her own experience, might appear to be a prospect of a settlement in life for Clare, especially as she must have deeply felt their responsibility in having induced or allowed her to accompany them in their own elopement. In fact, the feeling of responsibility in this most trying case might, to a highly imaginative mind, almost conjure up the invention of a Frankenstein. We now, May third, 1816, find Shelley, Mary, and Clare at Dover again on a journey to Switzerland. From Dover, Shelley wrote a kind letter to Godwin, explaining money matters and promising to do all he could to help him. They passed by Paris, then by Troyes, Dijon, and Dole, through the Jura Range. This time is graphically described by Shelley in letters appended to the Six Weeks Tour, the journey and the eight days' excursion in Switzerland. We read of the terrific changes of nature, the thunderstorms, one of which was more imposing than all the others, lighting up lake and pine forests with the most vivid brilliancy, and then nothing but blackness with rolling thunder. These letters are addressed to Peacock, but in them we have no reference to the intimacy with Byron now being carried on, how he arrived at the Hotel Secheron, nor their removal to the Maison Chapuis, to avoid the inquisitive English. There is fortunately no further reason to refer to the rumors which scandalmongers promulgated, rumors which undoubtedly hastened the rupture between Byron and Clare, although evil rumors, like fire smoldering in a hold, are difficult to extinguish, and, as Mr. Jefferson shows, the slanders of this time were afterwards a trouble to Shelley at Ravenna in 1821, when his wife had to take his part. These rumors were the source of certain poems— and also, later, stories about Byron. All lovers of Shelley owe a deep debt of gratitude to Mr. Jefferson, who, although severe to a fault on many of the blemishes in his character, as if he considered that poets ought to be almost superhuman in all things, nevertheless proves in so clear a way the utter groundlessness of the rumors as to relieve all future biographers from considering the subject. At the same time he shows how distasteful Claire's presence must have become to Byron who was hoping for reconciliation with his wife, and who naturally construed fresh obduracy on her part as a result of reports that were becoming current. Anyway, it is manifest that Byron did not regard Clare in the light that Mary may have hoped for, namely, that he would consider her as a wife, taking the place of her who had left him. Byron had no such new idea of the nature of a wife, but only accepted Clare as she allowed herself to be taken with the addition that he grew to dislike her intensely. So, after Shelley and Byron had made their eight-days tour of the lake, from June 23, unaccompanied by Marian Clare, we find a month later Shelley taking them for an eight-days tour to Chimuni, unaccompanied by Byron. Of this tour, Shelley each day writes long descriptive letters to Peacock, who is looking out for a house for them somewhere in the neighborhood of Windsor. They return by July 28 to Montalegre, where he writes of the collection of seeds he has been making and which mary intends cultivating in her garden in england for another month these young restless beings enjoy the calm of their cottage by the lake close to the villa diodati while the poets breathe in poetry on all sides and give it to the world in verse mary notes the books they read in their visits in the evening to diodati where she became accustomed to the sound of byron's voice with shelley's always the answering echo for she was too awed and timid to speak much herself. These conversations caused her, subsequently, when hearing Byron's voice, to feel a sad want for the sound of a voice that is still. It is during this sojourn by the Swiss Lake that Mary began her first serious attempt at literature. Being asked each day by Shelley whether she had found a story, she answered no, till one evening, after listening to a conversation between Byron and Shelley on the principle of life, whether it would be discovered, and the power of communicating life be acquired. Perhaps a corpse might be reanimated. Galvanism had given tokens of such things. She lay awake, and the sound of the lake and the sight of the moonlight gleaming through chinks in the shutters were blended the idea and the figure of a student engaged in the ghastly work of creating a man, until such a horror came to light that he shrank in fear from his own performance." Such was the original idea for this imaginative work of a Girl of Nineteen, which has held its place among conspicuous works of fiction to the present day. Frankenstein was the outcome of the project, before mentioned of writing tales of horror. One night, when pouring rain detained Shelley's party at the Villa Diodati, over a blazing fire, they told strange stories, till Byron, leading to poetic ideas, recited the witch's scene from Christabel. Which so excited Shelley's imagination that he shrieked and ran from the room. And Polidori writes that he brought him to by throwing water in his face. Upon his reviving, they agreed to write each a supernatural tale. Matthew Gregory Lewis, the author of The Monk, who visited at Diodati, assisted them with these weird fancies. End of chapter 6, part 2. Experience the best in relaxation and entertainment with Saul Streaming at saulgood.org. Our extensive library features hundreds of audiobooks, thousands of short stories, original podcasts, and popular sounds for sleep, meditation, and relaxation all ad-free. Whether you want to escape into a good book or fall asleep to your favorite ambient sound, we have something for everyone. Go to solgood.org to start streaming and discover your new go-to for entertainment and relaxation. That's S-O-L-G-O-O-D dorg Immerse in audio adventures at solgoodbooks.com. For $10 a month, dive into a sea of ad-free audiobooks. Let your ears lead you to new worlds and stories. Discover more at solgoodbooks.com and begin your auditory journey.